Welcome to Face the Jury, a podcast dedicated to confronting the issues of medical malpractice in America, what it is, how to spot it, and how to protect you and your family from medical negligence. I'm your host, Lloyd Bell, and it's my pleasure today to welcome two of my favorite clients of all time, Janet and Stephen Lane. Stephen, Janet, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you, Lloyd. I mentioned that um, you're two of my favorite clients, and I mean that. We, we were together for a number of years and recently resolved uh, your lawsuit that you had against one of the uh, largest healthcare organizations in the state of Georgia. And we're going to talk about your experience today, uh, a little bit about the case. We'll talk about your experience as clients, how the legal process sort of unfolded. Uh, but before I do that, I'd like you just each to tell us a little bit about yourselves, where you're from, a little bit about your story. So, Stephen, why don't you kick us off? All right. I'm, I'm now 73 years of age. Um, I started out in, this, in the city of New York. I was born in the Bronx. Went to high school in Brooklyn. Uh, I immigrated to uh, Georgia in 78, and uh, I've been here long enough to feel that I never lived anywhere else. I spent a lot of years, or many years, as a construction guy doing uh, commercial renovations and building, and also was a uh, school teacher where I taught vocational education. And I was the last construction trades teacher in Fulton County Schools. Um, all during my life, from age 14, I started studying the piano and ended up gravitating towards the bass. And I played bass up until the night that I had the stroke. Yeah, we'll talk, and we'll talk about the stroke in just, in just a little bit. And I understand you played in a band? Well, I, I actually played in several. I... I was one of the uh, few bassists that actually read music. So I was able to sit in in many, many different types of uh, settings, whereas uh, I played with a community orchestra for 10 years. I, I played with uh, a jazz group for nine years. I played with rock bands all through the time I was here in Georgia. I was a pretty versatile player. I, I could play what I heard if that makes any sense to anybody. A talent I do not have, and I have a lot of admiration oh, for you. Um, let, me, let me switch over to your bride here. Janet, introduce yourself. Tell us about, a little bit about your background. Hi, I'm, I'm Janet Lane. I um, also moved to Georgia from New Jersey in 76 um, and for a teaching job. And I taught math and language arts a little bit, but mostly math in Clayton County and then in Gwinnett County and finally in Fulton County. I retired in 2016 with 40 years from Fulton County. I retired, at, well, 2016 was about 35 years. And um, then I thought I couldn't imagine myself retired. So I put, worked part-time for an, an additional five years and then um, finally decided that it was time for me to let let that part of my life go and go on to other things. So worked in public education and then was a graduation coach and student support teacher and an advocate for um, for students. 
She's still tutoring. I actually have a, a young lady that I worked with when I, in, when I was working part-time that will call me. Uh, she's in high school now and asked me to help her with her math. So I am there for her. And it's my pleasure to, to help somebody who really wants to work, try. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you never fully retire in this business if you, uh, if you love what you do. We met, as it happens uh, in my profession, we met under very unfortunate circumstances. Stefan had, had experienced a stroke and went to Emory Hospital for treatment and then had a series of very unfortunate uh, mismanaged care, in our view, that made something that could have been addressed and reversed and could have had a much more favorable outcome turn into something catastrophic. And uh, what I'd like you to do, Stefan, is just to tell us your story of what happened uh, the night that you experienced a stroke. Well, I, re- I drove home uh, from a concert that we played with uh, Linear Jazz. It was an 18-piece stage band. Came home, and Janet made salad, and I was having salad for dinner. And my left arm didn't respond to my command to place a fork in my mouth being left-handed, and I thought that was really odd. So Janet immediately put me in the car and off to the closest hospital with the biggest reputation for being good, doing good things. Went to Emory Johns Creek, and I walked in, and they started, they checked me out and put me in one of the observation rooms in the emergency. And I was there for 24 hours, I believe. All the while, I, uh, I just felt like I was... Uh, you know, put in the closet and, you know, you wait here. And I remember walking back and forth to the bathroom, holding my gown together because I couldn't even get a urinal from those guys. I remember doing that three times. The story unfolded from there, you know, brought upstairs and remember uh, my blood pressure skyrocketing and uh, Janet calling in the nurse because she heard the machine go off and uh, they gave me, from what I recall was a uh, IV of hydrolyzine or something to immediately lower my blood pressure, which I learned later was probably a mistake. There's always that possibility with a high blood pressure, higher blood pressure will push a clot through. But, you know, not being a, a, a doctor myself, I, you know, that's my understanding of it. Well, and you had a type of stroke, they're, they're, they're different types, but the type you had is known as a clot stroke or an ischemic stroke where a, where a clot blocks up one of the arteries in your, in your brain. And what was interesting about your case is that when you showed up at the hospital, you had stroke-like symptoms, but then they resolved and they went away for a period of time. And in medicine, that's called a transient ischemic attack or a TIA. And they did the right thing by admitting you uh, for observation, but then you had another episode under observation with another series of stroke symptoms, and then those resolved, and then you had yet another series of symptoms, and then that was the, the time where a neurologist came to see you, but then didn't call a stroke alert and didn't take actions to to address the clot. Um, Janet, can you tell us your your memory of that? As Stefan said, he he, uh, had come home from uh, a concert and I I was here 
he had the he had the salad and when he told me he couldn't pick his arm up off the table i said we need to go to the hospital right now. And he said, take my blood pressure first. And I said, no, I'm not taking your blood pressure. I do remember from years of being in public education that the school nurse would always come in and talk about the signs and symptoms of stroke, which if I can just veer a little bit. Right now, the acronym is BFAST. It used to be just FAST, but the B stands for balance. So if you're having any balance issues and of course, there's a lot related to that, but it's balance. Fast is face. So the face would um, droop. A, it stands for arms. You can't pick your arms up off the table or can't pick your arms up. S is speech. Your speech is impaired. You may hear the person speaking gibberish. And T stands for time. So you have a certain window of time to get that person to the hospital. And did you know that? Did you know the, what, what BFAST stood for and understand these symptoms at the time? I did know that that not picking his arm up was was a sign and that we needed a, that a stroke might be pending. Stefan had had symptoms also, had a history rather, a history of high blood pressure. So it was it was not uncommon for us to get to an emergency room and check out blood pressure, and he had a number of stents put in, but was always released the next day or the couple days. As Stefan said, I did not put him in the car. He actually walked himself into the car, buckled himself up. Just want to make sure that at that time, as you said, everything resolved. As we were, as I was driving, it was, you know, December 2017, it was late at night in the suburbs, really no traffic. And I was just really zooming down um, the street to get to the hospital. And Stefan then again said to me, my face is tingling. And I just said, hold on, we're, we're going to get there. So I pulled up to the emergency room door. He got out I, and he walked in. I grabbed the, the closest parking spot, went in. He was standing up at the counter. And I just kind of said, you know, this is what's going on. And they pretty much took Stefan right away. And as you know, as you had said, there was a lot, there was some observation. It was late at night. It was like probably, I think I left the hospital around 1am that night. I was in touch with Stefan on the phone all that next day, back and forth. We had some things going on that afternoon. I had things going on that afternoon. And so trying to, you know, multitask and be in two places, but I was constantly in communication with Stefan. I got to the hospital that night around 6.30 and he had been moved from the observation in the emergency room up to a room upstairs. We had some friends that came to visit us or visit him and everything seemed to be going well. And it was probably about nine o'clock that things started to take a turn for the worse. Tell us what happened. So Stefan was hooked up to machines and he first had complained about a very severe headache and he doesn't normally get headaches. Um, so um, they did come in and give him something for his headache and the blood pressure went up and they can't, and Stefan's room was right across from the nurse's station. So even though the nurse's station can hear the monitor, I opened up the door and said, Hey, the machine's going off. 
And um, I think it happened really twice. The second time that's really sticks in my mind from five and a half years ago is his blood pressure had gone up to well over 200. I think it was 212 over 140 or something really, ex- or really extreme. And the nurse called the doctor who was in the, the hospitalist that was in the emergency room that night that actually had admitted Stefan. So he knew him. And the two of them seemed to talk, be talking about what was going on. And then the neurologist did come in. The neurologist did do an assessment of Stefan. One of the things that he did was he asked Stefan to pick his arm up over his head. And then he dropped the arm and let it go. And supposedly there is some sort of test that if Stefan moved his head, it showed that he didn't have a stroke or there's, you know, it's probably somebody with more medical knowledge than me can kind of address what that's about. He did a lot of prompting. Can you feel this? Can you feel this? You know, touching Stefan. Stefan actually never lost sensation. So he could feel, but he could not move his left side. And Stefan began to sweat profusely from his head. And the neurologist said, I feel very confident that Stefan did not have a stroke and he needs a good psychiatrist. He is having a conversion disorder. A a psychiatrist. Yes, he needs a good psychiatrist. That That this was all in Stefan's head and that he was imagining or... Uh, you know, just sort of conjuring these these ailments, and that's and that's that's what the doctor thought was right, going on. That all the symptoms of a psychosis, of everything that was going on, was all made up. What was your reaction when they asked you when they when they suggested he he just needs a psychiatrist? Unfortunately, my reaction was really first, why are you doing this? What's going on? I was dumbfounded. I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand what was going on. And my first reaction was like, you know, what, just really why? I really, um, the doctor and the, the other doctor, the hospitalist and the nurse were in the room at that same time and nobody spoke up. And, you know, I guess I have to say, maybe I was a little intimidated by the neurologist being like, you're a neurologist, you're supposed to know what's going on. But I would just, just on a side note, I would just say, if you feel, if anybody's listening to this and you feel that this is something's not right, speak up, speak up and just say, hey, he was fine. And we had, we were having a great time with our friends and our son called and everything was fine. This is just happening now. And the bottom line is Stefan had, had a history of high blood pressure and he was, you know, in that age range. So, you know, they took him out, they did some testing on him. They took Stefan out of the room. It was about by that time, 1130 at night. And I just sat down and in the room, in the chair, and looked at the empty space in the room where the bed was and just really didn't know what to think. 
we have a son that's a psychiatrist. And so being the mom that I am, I'm going, I'm not calling Zachary right now. I'm not going to call him. It's too late. He's probably sleeping. So the next morning I did call and I said, you know, told him what's going on. And my son said, conversion disorder is the last thing they should be thinking about. They should be ruling out all of the other, you know, things. And so like stroke. stroke. Yes. Sure. They should yeah. be ruling out stroke. Yeah. And so that Saturday afternoon, that next day was that all happened Friday night, Saturday, you know, things didn't get any better. I um, actually had gone down to the gift shop and bought some chocolate candy and stood by the left side of Stefan's bed and tried to see if Stefan would, he was left-handed, if Stefan would take the chocolate candy with his left hand to see. I was trying to do my own little evaluation and he didn't. And it was, things were not getting any better. And so I really didn't know what to think. It was actually not until Sunday. They did some additional testing on, on Sunday morning now when the stroke happened Friday night. And then the hospitalist said, I want to talk to you and confirm that it was a stroke. It took two days from the time that he was having these stroke symptoms before you received the definitive diagnosis that, yes, in fact, this was a stroke. Is that right? That's correct. Because Let me add a couple can... of things here. Yeah, go ahead. Jump in there, Stefan. When the doctor said that uh, I had needed a psychiatrist, I was actually relieved and inwardly happy for about 15 to 30 seconds because I figured I, I'll deal with crazy. I'll just get another different colored pill and some talk therapy and we'll work through this. But I, I started to get very angry. And I, at that point, I never lost my ability to think. It may have been impaired, you know, it's equivalent. What I was experiencing was the equivalent of going a couple of rounds with a boxer, you know, being hit in the head. Mm -hmm. But um, I was struck literally with how this doctor was allowed to walk into the room. And it was almost as though the Messiah had arrived and everybody in the room just sat there in reverence of this man. No feedback, no consultation, nothing. It just, fly, to me, it just flew in the face of, you know, of, of logic. Yeah. To that point quickly about, you know, that sort of deference that healthcare professionals, nurses, what they call mid-levels, PAs, physicians, assistants, that when you have that type of hierarchy, you can have real problems because people are afraid of speaking up. And this actually impacted your case because uh, I know you both know this, but for our listeners, if a person is having a stroke, that is a time-sensitive emergency. And if you get, a, uh, get somebody to the hospital quickly, the clock is ticking for, for whether that person can be effectively treated. And the standard of care now is that a patient who is having a stroke, a clot stroke, should receive TPA clot buster, it's called. It's a chemical that can dissolve clots within four and a half hours from the time the patient is last known to be well or to be normal. And then there are other treatments that go even beyond the four and a half hours uh, called thrombectomy, where they can possibly put in a little, like a rotor-rooter device into the, into the vessel in the brain and pull the clot out and restore blood flow. But that window closes. And once that window closes, these treatments 
are no longer available. So time is of the essence. And one of the things that was so, frankly, tragic about the care you received was that your very diligent wife, who was alert and, and engaged and took you seriously, got you to the hospital very quickly. I mean, you, I think you were with them in the hospital with a very brief period of time. But then once your stroke signs and symptoms went away, then the clock resets. So then your, your, when your symptoms came back, that starts the clock again for another four and a half hours of TPA, uh, up to eight to 12 hours for thrombectomy. And then when your symptoms resolved and came back the third time, then the clock reset. But the part that was so disturbing for me in this case was that the neurologist could have looked at the record and seen that you had been examined by a nurse just a few hours earlier. And that examination showed that you were normal, you're neurologically normal. Um, and that should have set, reset the clock. But the neurologist testified, well, I don't listen to nurses when they do evaluations. You know, they don't know as much as I know. So I would not consider a nurse's, a, a, a nurse working in a neurological wing of the hospital. He's saying, I wouldn't listen to a nurse in terms of evaluating last known well. And because of that, frankly, that arrogance, you were denied potential treatments that would have brought you back to normal and avoided so much of what you deal with on a on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, that was the part that impacted me in terms of, of how your, your course of care went. Would you mind talking to us, Stefan and Janet, about your condition? What has your stroke kind of left you with since you've been on this kind of path of recovery? Five years, four years now, five years. Five and a half years ago. Five and a half years, yeah, yeah. I have... Uh what's referred to as hemiparesis, which my entire left side of my body is very, very weak. I am able to get up out of my wheelchair and walk to the bathroom, and I can walk a certain small amount of distances in a belabored fashion. I use a, uh, what is that called? Hemi walker. A hemi walker, because I can't use a regular walker because my left arm is useless. Being left-handed, I can no longer type, you know, except with the, on the telephone, uh, my iPhone. I, can't, I haven't played in my instrument in five and a half years. I'm not a musician, but I've known enough musicians in my life to sort of a, or come close to appreciating what a loss that is. And would you, could you share with us a little bit about what, what does it mean to be a lifelong musician and then one day no longer be able to play again. Well, when, when a person begins to study music at, a, at an early age, you learn to express yourself emotionally through the instrument, which in some ways is not healthy because it interferes with interpersonal relationships because you dedicate how you feel and express through the instrument. So when um, all through the years... It was one of my shields for dealing with people. You know, I would go and hold myself up and play. Take away, take away that layer that was so integral to my emotions, expressive emotions. I, I, I was left emotionally paralyzed, so to speak, because it, it comes out as a level of frustration 
that's hard to describe. I can't, I, I can't even, I can't use a knife and a fork. Janet has to cut my food. One thing about the music is um, I, was, I loved that our life that Stefan would go like two or three times a week to the open mic jam nights where he would be able to go play someplace and play. And, but we, you know, came home and we would go out Saturday night. We'd go out Friday night. It was, we were together, but we still had our separate interests and he was independent and able to get around. And even that night when he had the concert, unfortunately I didn't go. I had something else going on that night, but Stefan was very involved with music. And that has been a great loss. And at one point he had said to me, we had a room where all the bass guitars were hanging on the wall. And he said to me, when I look at them, it's like looking at an, looking at an old girlfriend. I'm like, we need to get those out of the room and I don't want to see, see them anymore. So I, I do think that that was a very big loss emotionally for him. Let me ask y'all, at what point did you suspect that there may have been medical malpractice or medical negligence involved? And, and talk to us about how you, uh, you know, came to believe that there may have been negligence and how you got started on the path of, of a medical malpractice lawsuit. That next day, Saturday morning, when I called our son, who, who is a doctor, and I told him what happened, and he said to me, that the, the, the conversion disorder is the last thing and they should be ruling out the stroke. And as things progressed, I did speak to the chief of staff, the medical chief of staff, who actually said to me privately that they're very sorry that they clearly made a mistake and this would not happen. And as I understand that that kind of admission is not admissible, but um, so I had that. I had my son saying to me, that doesn't sound right. And what he had said to me is, don't do anything while dad is in the hospital. Just wait. And when he's out of that, of, out of there, and it was probably going medical malpractice and seeing an attorney was really not primary on my mind, really trying to get Stefan up and healed and thinking that he would be able to regain, you know, we were going to work really hard. We've had friends that had strokes, that this would not end up like this. So that was really never my primary uh, goal. But when Stefan first went to, an, from the hospital after a week at Emory, went to acute care for three weeks and then went to subacute rehab for another nine weeks while he was in the subacute, that's when I decided, you know what, let me go ahead and get the medical records. And then I had the I got the medical records and that started the process of, hey, is this a case? Janet and Stefan, we appreciate your willingness to share your story with us. Uh, we know there's still more to discuss, so we'll continue this conversation next time on Face the Jury.